Here we are at the end of John. It's been a long time coming. We've been working our way through John uh, since well, early last year. So we did half of John, then we took a little break, and now here we are uh, coming right to the end. It's been a, it's, it's been a wonderful journey through John. And I, I really love the book of John because of the way that it, it presents Christ. I mean, the whole scriptures present Christ, but there is a beautiful way. Each of the authors uh, in the Bible, God works through them by His Spirit. But each, of, each part of the Bible has the, I suppose, fingerprints on it of the persons that God used to put it together. And the fingerprints of John are all over this book in the way that Christ is presented and portrayed as our Lord and Savior, the one who brings life. We live in a world right now where uh, people, uh, they want to live, but they don't find true life, right? We, we want to use uh, all, of the, all of the resources at our disposal to try and live the best life, to have your best life now, so to speak. Uh, with, uh, with the medical um, field, we have so many advancements and we are able to prolong life. But one of, the, one of the awful things is that we don't have a vision beyond. We don't have a vision beyond this life and the material world that is around us. But John, uh, God, through the Apostle John, helps put that to bed and gives us a vision of a, of a life, a beautiful life, a wonderful life that is beyond the material As we come to the end of John here, we have this epilogue, this, uh, this little end. Because in some sense, we had ended last week with the end of chapter 20. It was kind of like it all kind of came to an end with this beautiful commission from Jesus for the disciples to go out into the world. And, you know, Jesus was alive. He'd given his spirit like he promised to. It all made sense. It was all buttoned up, but not quite. And so here we have this epilogue, and I describe it, it's a little bit like uh, the scene of uh, Frodo hopping onto the, the ships, the Elvis ships, to go, across to, um, to go across the Undying Lands at the end of The Lord of the Rings, for those who are interested in such things. It's like that, it's like that kind of scene, this beautiful scene at the end of the Gospels that really just puts a, a wonderful picture on the end. But it's a picture that, that leads somewhere. And so as we go through, we're going to see where this picture is pointing, where this epilogue is pointing us. And, it, and it, one of the ways that it points, it points forward to the restorer, the restorer, Jesus Christ, as he helps restore Peter in this passage. As we work our way through the passage, there's two main kind of pictures here. And so they will form the, the big body of the text. And then we've got those last verses from John. Those last couple verses is his kind of sign-off, and so we'll touch on them as well. But the first picture that we have is we have this picture where Jesus is bringing fruitfulness. Jesus is bringing fruitfulness. It's a picture of ministry. Uh, ministry is a word that Christians use. Uh, we also use it in politicians, politics as well, obviously. But it's kind of a bit, because of the way that we use it, it's kind of got a bit of a, a Christianese flavor to it, that it's somehow this special thing. Ministry basically just means service, right? It's a, it's a serving. And so when we talk about our Christian ministry, we're talking about the way that we serve, the Christian service. When even, and you know, 
when some people talk about religious leaders as ministers of religion, they are, they are service, they're in service to God. And so this picture in the first half of this chapter is a picture of Christian service, a picture of Christian ministry. And as usual in the book of John, you've got the kind of plain uh, upfront meaning, this is what happened. But when you kind of hang around in the text for a little while and you kind of study it, you realize that there's a little bit more going on than meets the eye. You know, for instance, John loves his irony, as we have seen. But where have we been in order to get up to this point? Where, what have we covered? Just in brief, you might, because, I mean, the, the January last year was a long time ago, so just a brief recap. Jesus has performed many miracles. This book of John has recapped for us the ministry of Jesus, the wonderful signs that he did. And John pulls out a bunch of special signs and kind of holds them up and says, look at these signs of Jesus. In some sense, the book of John is, is, can be read in complement to the other three Gospels. We call the other Gospels the synoptic Gospels because of the way that they very just go through and here's what happened, here's what happened. Um, but, but John's Gospel is a little bit more... I don't know, flavorful, a little bit more wild, a little bit more artistic, let's say. But John has held up a bunch of pictures of Jesus about what he's like, including the I am statements, the I am the good shepherd, I am the water of life. But he's traced this story and he's told us about how Jesus would go around preaching and teaching. And he spent a lot of time preaching and teaching in the north around Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, also known as Lake Tiberias. And uh, Jesus would also then have trips where he would go down to Jerusalem in the south. Remember at this time in history, uh, the nation of Israel as we knew it in the heyday of King David and King Solomon, that doesn't really exist. They're smaller um, and they don't really cover the whole land. They've kind of got areas, region in the north around Galilee and Nazareth. uh, And and, uh, they've got a region in the south around Jerusalem that is Jewish. But, you know, there's Sumerians in the middle and there's other Greek uh, influenced nations around. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's nothing like their heyday, and they're all under the Roman thumb. But Jesus has been traveling around the Jewish areas and, and, and a few little forays into non Jewish areas, but he's been preaching to them the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's been teaching to them, he's been telling them about the fact that he was on a mission from God, a mission from the Father to go into the world and to save the sheep, to go and save the flock of God. He was here to rescue God's people. And as Jesus traveled around and preached this good news, many people decided to follow Jesus and they would follow him around. Some of them literally would like follow him uh, across the, the lake or they would follow him up on mountains and, and sometimes he would even feed them when they followed him. But sometimes as the weight of following Jesus, the, the burden, the... Um, I suppose the severity of what it means to follow Jesus became apparent, a bunch of those disciples decided it was too much and they gave up. But there were still always some who heard the message and they responded and they followed Jesus. But the Jewish leaders, as Jesus was building up this kind of following of disciples and as Jesus was teaching, the Jewish leaders didn't want to have anything to do with it. They were upset and they plotted to kill Jesus from fairly early on. But the, the plans and intentions became more and more concrete until eventually uh, Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus gave himself up. 
So he wasn't at the whims of the Jewish leaders. He gave himself up. And they arranged for his execution with the reluctant help of the Roman overlords. And so Jesus, the one who came from God, the one who came to save his people, died. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. But it was all according to plan. It was all part of what Jesus came to do because he was the great shepherd who would lay his life down for the sheep, to save the sheep. And then a few days after he died, he rose from the dead in triumph over the grave. And then he revealed himself first to Mary Magdalene and then to the other disciples. And that's where we ended at the end of the last chapter with Jesus revealing himself to his disciples and then sending them out with the power of the Holy Spirit to continue his mission in the world, to take the words of God out into the world by the power of the Spirit and to take out the, and proclaim the forgiveness of sins as well as the judgment for those who stand outside of Christ. But even though that's a fine place to end the book, as we mentioned before, John gives us these couple more stories to uh, tidy things up. Let me just work our way through the passage, piece by piece. We see that Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It literally says in the Greek, Sea of Tiberias. The NIV has helpfully substituted Galilee here so that you don't get confused. But it's literally the Sea of Tiberias. The Romans loved like many other conquering nations when they conquered an area they or they set up a, a new city or something they'd name it after somebody important this the uh, state that we live in being a case in point victoria named after queen victoria so somewhere along the line somebody decided to rename the sea of galilee to the sea of tiberius in honor of emperor tiberius uh, of rome but the, the name the sea of galilee stuck so this is, they, they were up there at the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way, where Jesus appeared to them. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So here they are, they're on the sea, they're up north on the Sea of Galilee, now, where we left them, we left them down in Jerusalem, where they had been locking themselves away for fear of the Jews uh, and trying to hide out and, and not stir up trouble because they thought they would be next after Jesus had been executed. But now they are up north, back in their hometown region, and they're fishing. And John doesn't tell us really why they were up there, but we do get a hint from the other Gospels. They told us that Jesus told them to go and wait for him up on a mountain in Galilee. And so this seems to be where, what they're doing. They've, already, they've traveled up north, they're hanging out in Galilee. But they do need to eat. So they're not on a mountain right now. They've decided one night to go fishing. So I'm guessing that they have, um, they've been hanging out waiting for Jesus around this mountain and they've decided to go fishing. Some people think that this is actually a sign of their disbelief. Some people think that they are not being obedient to Jesus by hanging out on the mountain and they're out on the lake fishing. But I, I think it's, I don't think we need to kind of shoehorn that in to the text i think they are up in galilee doing what they've been told waiting for jesus to appear but they do need to eat and some of them have the profession of being fishermen some of them own boats on the sea of galilee and so they're going fishing to eat and when do you go fishing you go fishing at night because that was the best time for them to catch fish unlike us with our modern uh 
techniques of being able to make very fine nets. Their nets were quite robust because they needed to make them by hand and tie them all together. And so the fish could see the nets during the day if you were dragging it through the water. So they would go fishing at night when they were more likely to be able to kind of trap the fish in their nets. So here they are, they're fishing all night. And I don't think, as I said, that they're kind of returning to their old profession, but they're just using the skills and abilities that they have to be able to uh, make ends meet. So they've gone all night and they've caught nothing. Now, I don't know how many of you are fishermen, but if you take a tired fisherman with no fish in his basket, he will try just about anything to catch something. And so early in the morning, Jesus has stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Kids, if you're drawing pictures, maybe you would like to draw a boat with a massive net full of fish. 153 fish, if you can draw them. So they have, they, they, they're tired, they, they need, they, they're willing to try anything, including some guy on the shore about 100 metres away crying out, try the other side of the boat, which would seem so... <laughs> So silly, but of course, it's because Jesus was at work there. And they listened, they put the net on the other side, and they brought in the fish. Like other passages where Jesus and his resurrected body turns up, he's not immediately recognized. This is a pattern. There's several people who don't immediately recognize Jesus after he's resurrected from the dead, even though he seems to have the marks of the nails and in his hands and feet and the pierced side. But probably supernaturally Jesus kind of reserves his uh, like help, prevents people from recognizing him and that seems to be what's happening here and this of course is a throwback to something that has happened with the disciples before early on in Jesus ministry Jesus had a very similar encounter with the disciples before he called them to be his disciples and they threw they, they had been fishing all night and caught nothing and they tried to fish uh, on with the net on the other side and they caught a whole bunch of fish and so that tips Thomas off we've seen this happen before this is the Lord this is Jesus then the disciple whom Jesus loved this is John uh, sorry I made a mistake it wasn't Thomas it was John the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter it is the Lord and as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. If you kids are drawing that picture of a boat with a massive net full of fish, you can also draw Peter jumping off the boat in the water to try and get to Jesus. You see, it was... Peter realized that it was his Lord and he was not going to wait a moment. He's prone to kind of outbursts and, and hasty actions. And here we see, it's like, that's Jesus. I've got to get there. You, you guys are too slow. I'm just going to jump in and go to him myself. A wonderful picture of the kind of joy that I would hope that we would all have in wanting to come and seek out our Lord and Savior. But so Peter goes to the shore. Ahead of them, they're dragging in the net. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning 
uh, of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It's full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. What a wonderful picture. You come to shore to meet the risen Lord Jesus and he's got breakfast on the fire. He looks like Jesus has already been fishing himself. He's got fish and bread ready to go. And they call in the massive catch of 153 fish, of large fish, not just small fish, large fish, 153 of this. A wonderful picture. Now, if you go looking and you start asking the question, why is there 153 of them? You will get some wild answers. There's all kinds of maths about how it all adds up. Probably the strangest one that I heard was, it's the addition of all the numbers. It's the, yeah, so let me, let me get this right. It's a little bit, little bit weird. Seven is the perfect number of God, and 10 is the perfect number of God's law. So you add them together and you get 17. But then if you add up all the triangular numbers of 17, you get 153. So you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 all the way up to 17. You get 153. So I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I think what's happened is there was 153 fish and they counted them because there were so many and they wrote it down. And it's just a pointer to this historical accuracy of the fact that they just had a 153. They didn't even round it down to 150. They counted it. John was there. He saw it with his own eyes. And he remembers there was 153. And that's a lot of fish. That's a lot of large fish. But Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. What a wonderful picture. Jesus serving his disciples. They should be there serving him breakfast. They should be there cooking him breakfast. But here is their risen Lord, God in flesh, serving them breakfast on the shore of Lake Galilee in the early morning. I don't know about you, but I'd love to share a hot breakfast with Jesus by our lake. This is a picture of Christian life and ministry. This is, it's no accident that this passage here is placed just after John has uh, recorded them being commissioned to go out with the Spirit into the world and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus had rescued, not rescued, had, had come and taken some of these disciples who were fishermen. And he said, come and I will make you fishers of men. And here we have after this commission, this, this little scenario where they are out there fishing. And I think we are meant to see in here a picture of the disciples as those fishers of men. You see, when we go out on Jesus' mission, we need to go out and we need to do it Jesus' way. If we go out in our own strength and we just do what we want, the way that we want it, we come up empty-handed. In Christian ministry, if we go out and we try and reinvent the wheel, we try and go and think that we know better than God and to do it our own way, we'll come up empty-handed. Yet, when we hear the word of the Lord and we do what he says, there is fruitfulness and there is abundance. We think we know better in Christian ministry, Christian life. We think, well, oh, I've just got to get this book and read it and do it the way that this person says. Or 
I've got to adopt this tradition of the way that I pray this way and do these forms. Or we think, oh, if only we can adopt some of the marketing strategies of the world, then our church will thrive and people will become Christians. That's not what God says. If we listen to what Jesus says about the way that we are to go about Christian life, that we are to go, the way we are go about uh, seeking to save the lost, that's when we see fruitfulness. When we rely on the Lord, we listen to what He says, there is abundance. And in a, in a huge abundance, an overabundance. It is a beautiful picture to see that they had so many fish. But in that picture we see, we see that the net did not break. In those who are in Christ's service, those who see the catch come in, see the harvest come in, it's never too big. It's never too much. Yet we also see in this picture the wonderful, the wonderful way in which when the work is done, when the harvest is brought in, when the catch is brought in, we go and we meet with Christ. We are welcomed into the presence of God with joy. This is the pattern of our life. We're out in the world, we're working and serving, and our great desire is to see people to come in to know Jesus, to be fishers of men, to enter eternal life with joy. But when the work is done, when we've run the race, we will enter into the rest that God has prepared for us. We will join the Lord in feasting. And so this is what we do. We listen to the Lord and we act accordingly. And then we look forward to meeting Jesus in person. Yet for the disciples here on that morning around the, the lake, as they're meeting there, and they're having breakfast with Jesus, there's a cloud hanging over their head. There's an elephant on the lakeside, so to speak. Because not too long ago, Jesus was rejected by Peter. Not once, not twice, but three times he denounced his Lord. He, he pushed away any connection to Jesus. How could he sit there around, the around that fire? How could he have any joy or peace in that moment shared with Jesus when he was in, when that was kind of hanging over his head? Well, what we see is that Jesus brings restoration. Jesus brings restoration. And so this second part of the chapter is a picture of repentance and reconciliation, of being reunited with God after having been divided from him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus meets Peter over a charcoal fire, much like the charcoal fire that Peter was standing at when he said, oh, no, I don't, know, I don't know that Jesus guy. I've got nothing to do with him. Jesus meets him over a charcoal fire to turn back, to undo what he had done. Now, you might not think it's such a big deal if you were to save your own skin, you kind of re rejected or denounced somebody. But it is a huge deal when we're thinking about kind of loyalty or believing or trusting in God, especially when we put on our spiritual glasses and we understand that our spiritual life is connected to who we are connected to. If I could put it that way. We are united with God. If we are with God, if we are loyal to Him, if we believe and trust in Him, there is life and salvation. But if we reject Him, we try and follow some other false gods, try and make our own way, believe and trust in ourself, then there is, then there is death. And so Peter, in those moments of rejecting God, he's, he's disconnecting himself from God. 
He's not just trying to save his own skin. He is doing that. But he is trying, he's basically saying, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with it. It's a, it almost feels like an unpardonable sin. It is that grave. As Christians have been persecuted down through the centuries, one of the ways that they're persecuted is that they are basically put in positions where they are forced or tried to be forced to denounce Christ. Like Christian churches who are attacked and then they get out the Bible and they make all of the, the Christians who are meeting at the church to spit on it and or, and, or say something about denouncing Christ. It's, it's a grave thing. It's not a flippant thing to turn around and say, I reject Jesus, I denounce my faith. Jesus, after all, has said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But then the reverse being true, whoever denounces me, whoever um, does not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge before my Father in heaven. It's a loyalty thing. It's a, it's a, it's a unity of relationship thing. And Peter has three times said no and distanced himself. So is there any way that, that they can come back from that? Jesus seems to go for a walk with Peter. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. So Jesus is talking to Simon Peter. When he says, do you love me more than these? We're not quite sure what he meant by these, but presumably he meant the other disciples. He could have meant the fish, you know, if he was out there kind of being disobedient and going fishing instead of waiting for Jesus, that might make sense. But he's asking if Jesus, Jesus is asking if he is the preeminent love of his life. And Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. And, and Jesus responds with this commission, feed my lambs. But then he follows it up again. Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus gives him another commission, take care of my sheep. So feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So here we have in Jesus, in Peter's threefold denial of trying to push away Christ, we have here like a threefold undoing. Peter is repentant. He does love Jesus. He does want to be with Christ. He does want to be with his master. He does love his master. Although he has sinned and rejected him, now we see here this picture of his return or his He's, he's, he's putting his, his love, he's demonstrating his love for Jesus. It's almost as like Jesus is kind of undoing each of those denials one at a time with this threefold answer. Some people uh, look into the detail here and, and many of you know that in Greek there's, two, there's a few different words for love in, in including agape and phileo. Um, and those Words, different words are used in here when Jesus is using the word love and Peter's using the word love. But it's not really significant here. John, as he's writing, he uses these words interchangeably. So I don't think there's anything really we need to read into it. But it is interesting to see that, that Jesus uses the word that is usually reserved for God's um, 
especially grand, uh, pure love. Whereas Peter seems to be a little bit more reserved when he's talking about the kind of the brotherly love. It's almost as though he can't bring himself <laughs> to, he, he knows his own weaknesses, knows his own past actions and he doesn't want to overpromise. But Jesus meets him in that and Jesus starts using that word that Peter uses. After all, they're probably speaking Aramaic on the shore and so the words that John uses to kind of translate, there has meaning but I don't think we need to read into it too much. We see Peter here professing his love for Jesus. It's a, it's a sign of his repentance, a sign of his uh, sadness about what went before. But he is he's grieved because he's had to really be pushed to take account uh, for what he had done. And I think here Jesus is deliberately doing that to make him come face to face with the, the relational disunity that has been caused by his rejection. Peter knows that Jesus knows all things. He knows that Jesus can see his heart. And Jesus can see that his love was genuine. I hope for us that that is our love that we can have, a genuine love. I hope that you could say to Jesus, you know all things, you can see my heart, you know that I love you. I do fear, though, that there are some of us who profess with our mouth, with our lips, that we love the Lord, but our hearts are far from him. In that case, turn back. Turn back to the Lord and submit your heart to Him so that your heart might be changed. That you don't just say the words, but that it is actually lived out. It's actually the real present uh, reality of your heart that you do love Him. But friends, we see here this pic- in this picture that Jesus does restore His people. That it's not too late. We might, we might think of people who have done awful things. They've professed the name of Christ and they've done something awful. They've, uh, they've committed fraud or, or, or theft of some kind. Perhaps they've had an affair or um, you know, done something terrible sexually. And we, we think of those people as kind of setting themselves apart from Christ, or, you know, doing something that's completely out of character with belonging to Jesus. But kind of worse, if you could say, than those sins is the rejection of the Lord himself. And so Peter has done this awful, terrible sin in rejecting the Lord, but Jesus brings him back. Jesus restores him into relationship with him. Jesus brings him back and not just kind of into a kind of, you're just inside the door kind of thing, but no, he's restoring him to a position of leadership. He's saying, go and feed my lambs, go and lead my church. Even after this horrible, horrible sin that Peter had committed, Jesus brings him back. There's reconciliation. That is a great news for us, that there is no sin that we can commit that will put us outside the love of Christ. That does not give you the permission, obviously. Shall I sin all the more that grace may abound? No, by no means. But the point is that if you feel that you are beyond God's love because of what you have done, you can take comfort in knowing that Christ's love is greater still, that His grace and forgiveness can cover the worst of sins, the most awful thing that you have done, the mistakes that you're going to make in the future. Christ's grace and love can cover that. You can be restored. 
and not just as a kind of like, oh, I can, I'll just make it into God's kingdom. But no, you can be in a place of, of privileged position in Christ's kingdom. Jesus continues by uh, giving Peter a foretaste of what is to come for him. He says, very truly, when I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate by which kind of death Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. So he's making a prediction about the kind of death that Peter would die. Traditionally speaking, we believe that Peter died with outstretched arms, crucified upside down in his old age in Rome. He was so committed to his Lord and Saviour, so united to him that he would go to death for him. But Jesus finishes with that follow me, that commission to follow him. But like most people, when somebody's pressing us on our sins, pressing us on our mistakes and our weaknesses, what do we want to do? We want to change the subject. We want to say, oh, but what about so-and-so? Or what's happening with so-and-so? Or it's, it's the changing of the subject. It's the, um, dis- I'll distract you by talking about something else. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. So there was John following them. This was the one who had uh, leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? But when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? <laughs> what's going to happen to him? Or, you know asking something about John. And Jesus basically says, what do, what do you care? What does it matter? <laughs> You're changing the subject. What does it matter if, you know, I want him to remain alive until I return? What is it to you? You must follow me. Peter was getting distracted with other people and other things. And isn't that the case? Even this morning, as, as you sit here and hear the word of God proclaimed, and you hear some of the pointed things that it might have to say to you, and you go, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. We want to turn and we want, we want to consider others when, when we should be listening to God's word to us. We should be concentrating on what God has for us and God has for Peter to follow him. But nevertheless, because of this little remark that Jesus made, they thought, oh, maybe, maybe, um, maybe John will live until Jesus comes back. Maybe he'll live until the second coming. Now, John did live a really long time. He was one of the younger disciples. He lived probably um, uh, potentially to about the 90s AD or even even later. Um, so he, he lived a pretty long time, but he was not to outlive. Uh, he was not to live until Jesus returned. But the rumour started because of this little turn of phrase that Jesus used. So we see here this, this, this picture of restoration that there is for Christians, for people who belong to Jesus, that there is restoration, that you're not beyond the love and grace and mercy of Christ. There might be a process of restoration. It might take some time. You know, this, this conversation that Peter had wasn't the morning after what he had done. This is uh, potentially a few weeks or even a couple months later. But here, Peter was restored, and you can be restored too into relationship with Jesus. But it might mean coming to face-to-face with what you have done in rebellion against God before you can find restoration and repentance. But don't worry about the sins of those people around you. You just do what you are called to do and follow Jesus. Look after the log in your own eye before you look after the speck in somebody else's. 
And we close uh, this passage, this book out with these final words that Jesus did, that firstly John says, look, I'm the one who's writing. But then he says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So Jesus' work is immeasurable. Even in the short time that he was on earth, he did so much, accomplished so much and said so much, it was impossible for them to write it all down. This is our God who who does so much. He is incomprehensible. And Jesus tips us off to that in these closing words of this book. Something that was really opened up to us in the opening verses of John, when he said the word was with God and the word was God. He paints this, this almost incomprehensible picture of who Jesus was with the Father and what he came to do and in his kind of magnificence and in eternality. And yet here we have another nod to that as we close out the book, that our wonderful Lord Saviour has come and done so much, so much that it can't even be measured. There's a, I, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a great uh, saying, you know, if, if all the world, if all the oceans with ink filled and all the sky was parchment, it wouldn't be enough room to write down all the wonderful um, things that God has done. This is our God, the God that we worship. So what? Go out into the world, serve the Lord. Serve him the way that he has called you to serve him. And serve him uh, listening to him and what he says to you. And when you have done your service, you will go and you'll be with him and you will meet with him. And even now we're going to have a foretaste of that in the Lord's Supper as we eat the supplied bread and blood. You go out into the world and um, yes, we will fall, we will fail, we will make mistakes. But there is restoration available in Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ who is incomprehensible and beyond all imagining. Yet he has entered into history for us.